If you've listened to this week's episode of the Tova podcast, you'll have heard us investigating the state of our emergency housing system. We spoke to a mother who provided a frontline look at the places people are expected to live in. It was a long conversation, it had to be to get her full story, and we couldn't run the whole interview in the pod, but it's worth listening to everything that she wanted to say in her own words. Also worth noting that the full pod contains responses from one of the accommodation providers Juanita dealt with and the government. We wanted to get all perspectives on this important issue. So here's Juanita DeSena on her experience of emergency housing so far. Okay, Kia ora Juanita, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Tova. You've had uh, this incredibly, what's a scary situation that you've found yourself in through largely no fault of your own, um, not through any actions that, that you've taken, which led you to being homeless for a time, sleeping in your in your car, worried about where your 11-year-old son is going to be sleeping. In your own words, can you give us a, a bit of a brief overview of what happened, what what led you to this point? So in early November, um, I was issued with a 90 days notice from my property manager of my landlord's intention um, to sell. So being so close to Christmas in the first instance, I asked for an extension mm. um, with uh, property viewings and tenancies um, closing down over that period for at least four weeks. Um, I realistically only had 60 days to work with and given the demand on the rental market, I knew it was going to be really challenging to be able to find a new home. Um, So um, unfortunately, my landlord wasn't able to um, support me with an extension, so I quickly swung into action and within a month I had attended over 60 uh, physical viewings or done um, online application. 60. And um, what I quickly found was is that um, you had to um, declare your source of income so I was made redundant during COVID and um, so I was often not even being shortlisted to attend physical viewings and I felt that um, that was potentially because I was a WINS client and there are some stereotypical views held about WINS clients as potential tenants. And there's so much competition in there as well, isn't there? So they might just be kind of strike that, strike that if you've got 30 people or whatever at a viewing. Um, Yeah, that's correct. So there was over 30 families at each physical viewing, all trying to put our best foot forward to be considered for each property. And um, one of the challenges that I faced with physical viewings is that in the last three years, I've chosen to wear the moko kauai. Which is beautiful, by the way. And I felt that definitely went against me, that there was a little reluctance and hesitancy um, and perhaps held by stereotypical views of uh, Māori as potential tenant. Mm. That, so you, you're not able to get uh, a rental and that's going to meet the kind of same time frame as you being kicked out of your your existing place. This is when you you find yourself needing to to seek emergency housing over that over that interim period. What was that like trying to get emergency housing so that you and your son wouldn't be, I mean, it's uncertain, but in the worst case scenario, sleeping on on the streets. So um, after um, 
many unsuccessful applications for uh, private rentals. Um, I went to a social worker based at my son's Kuramurai and we went through the process of applying for social housing. So that was getting on the register for both Kainga Order, our state social housing provider, as well as um, private not-for-profit um, social housing um, with organisations such as Court. Um, I had to go through a very lengthy process to... Um, court, and just for court's a community housing provider, isn't it, that works alongside Kainga Order to provide social housing? Yes, um, and so you have to provide a number of documentation, so letters from GP, therapists, social workers, school principal, um, and basically they're all trying to um, help you uh, be prioritised for the earliest available housing that may be available. Mm. And um, I was fortunate to be interviewed and verbally offered a um, new build, with social housing provider court. Mm -hmm. uh, the anticipation of that um, housing being available was early January, um, but due to compliance um, delays because it was a new build, uh, it spiralled um, into delay after delay. So it started off with early January, mid-January, late January, end of January, early February, mid-February, um, I was able to successfully negotiate three extensions mm -hmm. with my landlord, although uh, they were very reluctant because they were very anxious to sell. Um, but they, they were facing cost of living pressures as well, right? And so they were generous enough to be, give me three extensions, but after three extensions, it just wasn't tenable for them to keep me on as a tenant when they're anxious to sell uh, with the rising interest rates. Um, so um, I found myself needing to reach out to MSD for emergency housing. Um, and I was unaware of what the process was around emergency housing. I took some educated guesses. I went on to um, WINS uh, community Facebook pages so that I could be proactive uh, and do things like um, get quotes for um, low-budget accommodation. Mm. I'd had heard stories that um, a lot of our emergency housing is at ca capacity, so I didn't want to be naive and just rely on the system. Like, okay, well, if it is at capacity, um, I've done a little bit of homework, meet, meet them halfway, mm. do my part in this process. Um, and what I was told was is that um, we can't actually help you until you're actually homeless. Yeah, so that, I've never heard that before. So until you're actually homeless, you can't apply for emergency housing. How does that work? And so, so even if you're facing certain homelessness, which you were... So, um, you know, I was given a final exit date of Saturday the 17th of February. Um, I was given that a few weeks in advance. So those weeks leading up to that date, um, I made physical appointments, face-to-face -face appointments with WIND staff and said, this is what's on the landscape. What do I need to be doing? What should I be doing? I'm checking with the social housing provider on a weekly basis for updates. Mm. Um, there's been no change. Um, and so... I uh, just met with them weekly and then was um, scheduled for an appointment that week and then the day before I'd actually made homeless, um, that was when um, they made the call that they could actually put me into emergency housing. 
sort of really was at that at that crunch point. We'll talk more about emergency housing in a minute, but what, what do you think about all of those consenting delays that, that kind of forced you to be in this position in, in the first place? Um, I think, you know, going forward, I think there needs to be some kind of communication mechanism between central and local government that where social housing or um, um, for families is um, is being delayed, that those properties are prioritised for compliance sign-off because they're our most vulnerable Mm. families and um, they don't have any other options. Yeah, councils should be looking at those cases and going, okay, this is urgent. These people are going to, you know, be out on the streets potentially if we don't consent this. So get in there and get it done. It's a huge expense when you go into emergency housing. Um, You know, the costs are astronomical. Um, So, you know, for example, uh, there's kind of like a blanket rate for emergency housing, whether it's a two-star motel or a -a three-and-a-half-star hotel. Um, It's $350 a night. And at that price, you know, I think your average Joe blog would be expecting to stay in a Hilton suite, Mm. you know, in a studio suite for that price. Um, And then there's also uh, uh, other costs such as... um, parking. So if you have children and you're um, being placed in emergency housing which is out of zone of your school so you're incurring costs for parking which is covered um, by winds but then you're you know repaying those costs um, and it's quite stressful because mm. um, you know you're not any you're not somewhere permanent you're somewhere transitional and um the venues themselves, you know, um, the... Yeah, well, let me, let me even ask a question, segueing into that, if that's okay, because we might um, just kind of keep the consenting issue as a separate issue as well that we explore more at a later date. So um, back in the... You're in the Windsor office, you've got this place just on crunch time, just as you're about to find yourself homeless. So you get to the emergency accommodation for the first time. What do you find? So... Um, I didn't go into emergency housing naive. Uh, I've worked in community development for over 25 years. Um, I considered myself to be pretty streetwise on that front. Mm. Um, my expectation was that it was going to be around like a, a two-star budget uh, accommodation. You know, I typically think of um, like a motel that we may have stayed in during our childhood. Mm. Um, you know. It's fit for purpose, it's clean, and it's functional. And, you know, worst case scenario is, um, yeah, it's a little tired because mm. it's age. You know, we've got all the hotel chains now that own the um, tourism industry, you know, like the Big Ridges and Sedema and the Marriott, and these are the, um, you know, bygone era yeah. of motels. And so that was my expectation. I'd stay in a two-star motel, but clean and functional um, and yeah I thought that you know there'd be like a kind of like when you go flatting um, as a student there'd be a little fridge freezer that you'd be able to you know store a week's groceries um, in um, a kitchenette with you know one or two hot uh, stove tops mm. um, and um, you know sink uh, but what I found at my very 
first uh, emergency housing provider was um, you were not permitted to have hot plates or microwaves uh, in the, in your suite. Um, that uh, there was a little tiny bar fridge, so um, not a bar fridge that you'd have in your garage, but think um, like uh, if you're in a flooding situation and you're putting a little stash of Coke and chocolate bars, mm. like, and um, this is emergency housing that's targeted for families, mm. so where you're supposed to put a week's grocery. So what I found myself doing was throwing out all my food, mm. arriving at this emergency accommodation. There was nowhere to store, um, you know, perishable goods and, you know, f- had to throw out all that food. And then... Um, and what about what about the, the state of the housing in general? What, you know, what kind of state was it in? Oh, the um, emergency housing was, um, it was, you know, beyond belief. It was astonishing. Um, on the outside, it presented itself as Airbnb accommodation, mm. but then when you got up to uh, close to the building, vomit, dried vomit Ugh. down the walls on the exterior of the building. So people just put their head out the window and vomited and oh. it had dried up. Uh, you entered into the building, um, so much grease and surface dirt on the floors. Um, Feces, blood on the walls. Vomit, feces and blood. That's revolting. Uh, Crude drawings of uh, genitalia, uh, sexually explicit and degrading um, language, targeting females, uh, cockroaches, um, uh, old food um, that was growing fungus in the microwave, Stove tops in the um, communal area, uh, just covered in grease, cockroaches, fruit flies, uh, food flies. Um, yeah, okay. it was just absolutely horrific. Um, there were young babies and toddlers um, in the place. Um, it was just, yeah, it was really quite confronting and challenging. And, um, yeah, I did feel my mental health take a little bit of a dip, as in I just felt so overwhelmed. I'll bet. Um, this is, was going to be my new reality until my new build could be ready to move in. And you saw some of those kids as well. Like they were unsupervised as well at times too, weren't they, those, weren't they, those children? So the challenge with emergency housing is that there's no, um, you know, it, it's basically kind of like boarding style house. Um, you just have your room. Mm. There isn't, you know, a, a play area for children. Yeah. Um, there's um, no communal area other than the kitchen area. And those communal areas are, you know, are filthy, um, are dirty, and unsanitary, unhygienic. And, you know, the crude drawings that are around the place don't foster a sense of safety or security in that. And so, you know, like kids are cooped up in these little rooms that just holds a bed and um, all their parents' life belongings. And so the parents, you know, let them have a little wander around the hallways just to, you know, so they don't get cooped up and... 
And we've got um, a video that you've provided to us of that emergency motel as well, which we'll put up on the Stuff website, which you said doesn't even do it justice, but you've painted a pretty um, um, a, a pretty vivid picture there. And, and you, you opted not to stay there in the end, Juanita. Yes, um, as I mentioned, I felt very overwhelmed and by and confronted by what I saw, and I just made a unilateral call that um, I was better off sleeping in my car. Um, obviously, my first um, priority was to make sure that my son was safe and um, uh, ha had him housed elsewhere, mm -hmm. and um, and chose to sleep in my car that weekend. Um, First thing Monday morning, uh, following MSD process, I rung the call centre to get a face-to-face -face appointment, but also did a walk-in at 8.30am as soon as the office um, opened mm -hmm. and um, explained to the caseworkers at the WINS office. And so with caseworkers, um, they're, uh, they're the frontline staff. They don't necessarily have decision-making powers. Um, so... Anything that needs um, priority um, has to go up the food chain. And so uh, they were very sympathetic and um, tried their best to get me into um, another uh, venue for emergency housing. But the challenge that I faced was that there's no quality control. There's no quality assurance about mm. where you're going to. So what was so round two? What, what was that next? So round two. Um, so I've left the wind office. I've gone to the second location. Um, the irony is that it was located behind the high court. Uh, midday. Um, it's a park and display outside. I haven't. Um, agreed to stay there I'm just going to do my own quality check fair enough after what you did last time and so I'm um, parking and uh, while I'm um, parking um, I notice a couple of gentlemen coming out of the building one goes off to my left and um, approaches a uh, black range rover that has gang members in it and they're conducting a drug deal and to my right uh, two gentlemen have walked off to um, the grass area located behind the High Court to partake of drugs. So this is midday, Monday, a weekday. So close to the court, you've got drug dealers, gangs and people using drugs. And um, the issue that I had with this was is that um, my 11-year-old son has never seen his parents consume alcohol, mm. so in what parallel universe would I be okay with him witnessing drug deals, gang members? Um, so I get into the building, um, I'm able to access the room that we've been allocated. Uh, it's a, a, a very small studio apartment, but you know we can make it work. Mm. And I get in there and probably the first thing that hits me is the heat. So I stayed there for 15 minutes, just really mindful that, you know, I'm kind of going through a heightened period of time. And I look on a, a, a temperature app and the room is 26, 27 degrees. Oh, so wow. if you've ever been to places like Perth 
or Canberra and you hop off the plane and how the plant, the heat hits you. It consumes you. And that, and I just thought, this is um, not going to be conducive to two people. So my son's five foot six, I'm five foot six. Um, he's a, um, you know, he's built like a teenager. So you put our body heat in that mix mm. as well. And so I rang up the building manager and I said, is there any possibility that we could be relocated to another room? I've taken the temperature in this room, been in here for about 15 minutes, and it's extremely hot, you know, about bordering on 26, 27 mm. degrees. You can mind the drug dealers downstairs. And um, she informed me that the building itself has no cooling system. There's no air conditioning in the building at all. Um, that the building is at capacity with full of Wynn's clients and um, that they wouldn't be able to accommodate me. And so I felt a bit conflicted about that. So obviously I said no, not fit for purpose, health and safety reasons and security and safety reasons mm. as well. Um, but the conflict and tension that I felt was is that um, I was leaving, you know, tens of wind clients mm. in those conditions who had no choice but mm. to accept those conditions. And so I um, rang up winds, explained um, what had occurred and um, was made to feel like I was being difficult and demanding. And I didn't think that insisting on having an environment that was free of drug dealing and drug uh, taking mm. was, you know, out of the realm of um, acceptable, you know, of, uh, of acceptable living standards. Mm. But I was made to feel like I was being difficult. And, yeah. And, so, and some people might be like, well, you should be grateful for, you know, whatever you've, you've been offered. What would you say to people who, who perhaps think that? Well, you know, ask yourself, um, how would you navigate conversations with your child mm. about drug dealing, about gang? Um, imagine having to have conversations with your child about why we have to live and occupy a room together that's bordering on temperatures of 26 and 27 yeah. degrees. And every parent, their number one concern is the well-being of their child and the comfort of their, their child. So I think every parent would empathise with that. And also, you know, it's about, you know, what is the world reflecting back to your child that uh, these are acceptable conditions mm. and that um, your uh, primary needs um, are not important, yeah. that your health and safety is not important, that somehow you're a second-class citizen because you find yourself in emergency housing for, you know, through no fault of your own, but, um, you know, you've got to suck it up. Yeah, I don't think we should ever compromise for our children or for ourselves, for that matter. Um, the, the Ministry of Social Development says that, this is a quote, we expect our clients to receive the same quality of service as any other paying guest at motels and other accommodation providers used for emergency housing. I'm, I'm picking that that was not your experience. No, um, there's def definitely a different kind of tier model for people that are finding themselves in um, emergency housing. And I think that... Um, 
society has reflected this viewpoint back at these vulnerable families that, um, you know, be grateful, suck it up, um, and that, you know, this is what you're worthy and deserving of. But the tension point for me as a consumer, but also um, for the other families that are, find themselves in this situation is, is that everyone deserves to live in decency and dignity. Mm. And not perpetuate those um, those stigmas as well. What do you want, Winita, the government to do about all of this? Because it funds the emergency housing. It says it needed to do that. It was a stopgap measure. It's better than people sleeping under bridges and in cars. Can it really also then be expected to be monitoring the hygiene, the cleanliness of all of these emergency housing providers? What's the government's role here? I think there's a number of um, things that government and government agencies can do to address this. Um, you know, you go out to eat in a restaurant and there's a food star rating and they have to adhere to certain things to get different grades, an mm. A grade and a D grade. And, you know, people that get D grade find themselves listed in uh, news articles and they quickly, you know, within seven days, you know, they've rectified all the issues that gave them such a bad grading. And that's not occurring in our um, emergency housing. Mm. So there's no checks and balances to say that... Um, what it was presented to MSD when it first applied to be a supplier um, and what it's actually providing clients. Mm -hmm. So you actually need a quality assurance and compliance team that just does random spot checks and make sure that these um, facilities are fit for purpose, that they are, you know, nurturing to our families and are serving them with dignity and respect. The other issues is, is that... Um, you know, we can't rely on hotels and motels to serve our short and long-term uh, emergency housing needs. Um, you know, like when we think of emergency housing, I think most people are thinking of like five to six days. I well, mean... Well, it's, yeah, it's supposed to be seven days max, isn't it, the grants? And so I am, you know, I've extended my seven days. Compliance delays are ongoing. Um, and I am now facing a situation where they don't have accommodation for me because all the um, accommodation that is being used as wind supplier fully booked out for a pink concert that's coming to town. And so, you know, I now have the anxiety of uh, not knowing where we're going to be from the 8th of March onwards. Should I still be in emergency housing? And, um, you know, being How asked... How does that make you feel, and just having that extreme uncertainty and knowing what you know you've got you've got a, a framework of reference now you've been going through this and you know that it's not easy um, I imagine you never expected it to be but what is that uncertainty like for you now for you and your boy well I feel like you know you're running the gauntlet again so I mean it took me three goes to find you know basic accommodation that was fit for purpose and clean and functional and so you know it doesn't give me a lot of confidence going into this next round of like, oh, am I going to have to go through two or three residences to find that same level of quality? Um, and also that, um, you know, all our emergency housing suppliers are at capacity mm. for the most part. And that, and so the options are slim pickings. And that, and, um, you know, that can be quite, yeah, it makes you feel anxious, um, and there's not a lot you can do. 
And without those um, compliance and monitoring issues in place, you can't put your hand on your heart and say to client, um, look, um, we've got uh, X, Y, and Z options available for you. Um, we can stand by them as being safe, secure, clean, functional, take your pick. But that hasn't been my track record. And I've only been in the emergency housing system for a little over a week. Mm. But already it's, yeah. And, and that's part of the reason you got in touch with us and it's part of the reason we're talking today is you wanted to um, not just challenge the, the system but some of the, the perceptions and the stigma around the people that are um, receiving support for emergency housing. What would you say to people that perhaps believe some of those stereotypes? I think, you know, the whole landscape of emergency housing has changed incredibly I think there were societal expectations that people that were accessing emergency housing were there through their inability to manage their personal lives, whether that be finances or managing a tenancy. But what we're finding today, it's a range of issues. It could be anything from a natural disaster damaging your home, and we've experienced a lot of those in the last couple of years. Um, it could be... Um, demand for rental so the the uh, demand exceeds the supply mm. um, you know we're having up to 30 50 families attending you know private viewings and most listeners will be able to attest to this every community facebook page has posts for does anyone know of a three-bedroom rental and that's all around keeping their children in local schools mm. and there's been studies around um, protective factors so protective factors are that um, your child is less likely to experience uh, mental distress mental harm depression if they are able to stay connected to their existing community stay in their mm. existing school and that and so um you know, so we have this huge rental demand. Um, we also have, um, you know, a cost of living crisis as well. So uh, there's recruitment freezes in every sector. Uh, redundancies are happening um, all the time. And so it's no longer about people that are perceived as not being able to manage their lives. We are now entering a realm where most people... Um, a one paycheck away from being homeless. And what I mean by that is, is they lose their job, they lose the inability to pay rent. And if you can't pay rent, then you're instantly homeless. So many families now living on that precipice um, and your situation ongoing as well. And we're so grateful, first of all, that you shared your story with us, but also we'll stay in touch too um, and, and kind of follow the progress and we'll stay on the on the story too and put, put these concerns to the minister who we've got on the podcast as well. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a bonus episode of the Tova podcast. There's a full show every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ka kite. If you like this podcast, please support our work visit stuff.co.nz support.